Cuba is still a dictatorship, how the Cuban people is still suffering uh, one of the biggest repressions in the history of our hemisphere. Listeners, welcome to the 18th episode of Global. We've successfully made it to the summer of our second season of the podcast, which is a nice milestone for us here. I'm Sinclair Stafford, Program Manager in IRI's Middle East and North Africa Division. To kick off this episode, we've got to update you on all some changes with the global personnel. Unfortunately, our very own Ryan Maddox has left us for greener pastures working in the defense industry. We wish him the best and he'll be missed, but we definitely feel safer knowing that such a thoughtful guy is working on those issues. Taking Ryan's spot, we've got another supremely talented fellow, Mr. Travis Green. Travis, welcome. Hi. Glad to be here. <laughs> I actually don't know you very well, but... <laughs> well, I'm I guess sure we'll get, get the get... chance. Yeah. Um, well, Travis works in IRI's Latin American and Caribbean division as a program associate. Uh, he's got a master's degree in uh, international development. And uh, the fact that he works in the LAC division is actually perfect for this episode because we're talking about a country that's in your region, Cuba. Yeah, Cuba is actually an extremely fascinating place, um, full of just lots of contradictions and keeps keeps people busy and up at night. So it's really interesting to be talking about for a little while. I definitely got that impression. Cool. Well, if you are joining us for the first time, Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. As Sinclair mentioned, we're focusing on Cuba this month. It's a complicated country, so if you have any feedback, corrections, or even compliments, please reach out to us at podcast at IRI.org or leave us a comment in the review section. For sure. So since you're way more of an expert than I am, Travis, what do we need to know about Cuba? What are the fast facts? The Republica de Cuba is an island nation in the Caribbean 90 miles south of the Florida coast. It's approximately 42,400 square miles, which is a little smaller in area than the state of Virginia. Cuba's population is around 11 million people, comparable to Tunisia, Belgium, or Ohio. A little more than one-fifth of those people live in the capital, Havana. Though technically a one-party socialist republic led by the new president, Miguel Díaz-Canel, it's also a military dictatorship in a lot of ways, as we'll hear from our guests in this episode. Cuba is one of the world's only planned economies, meaning that the state controls basically every aspect of, of life on the island and relies heavily on the export of sugar, tobacco, coffee, and skilled labor. Regarding its religious makeup, as with all things Cuba, the story isn't exactly straightforward. While most are Catholic, um, there's also a unique spiritual tradition in Cuba called Santeria. Santeria is a syncretic religion that combines the spiritual tradition of the West African Yoruba people and Roman Catholicism. This mashup was a historical consequence of the Spanish Empire's slave trade from roughly the 16th through the 19th centuries. The music that's an integral part of Santeria has had a significant impact on the development of Cuban music as well, which we'll hear later in the episode. Well, that's really interesting. How about some fun facts? Well, if you listened to the last episode on Sri Lanka, Cuba is one of the only two countries in the world where you cannot legally buy or sell Coca-Cola, the other being North Korea. Cuba is actually made up of 4,000 different islands and Ks. What's a K, you might ask? Well, Merriam-Webster tells us that it is a low bank or reef of coral, rock, or sand. 
Additionally, Ernest Hemingway, one of America's most prominent writers, wrote his classic For Whom the Bell Tolls while he was living in Cuba. I've actually never read that book. It is quite fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Really? Okay. Let's introduce our esteemed guests for this episode. We were really fortunate to be able to connect with some folks who are uniquely positioned to provide some keen insights on Cuba. Definitely. We are joined by Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton, who represents Florida's 27th Congressional District. She's the most senior representative from Florida and was the first Cuban-American elected to Congress in 1989, 30 years after she and her family fled Cuba when she was eight. She's also the first Republican woman to be elected to the House from Florida. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast, and I love IRI. I love your mission. I love your work. I love the people who are part of the IRI mission. Also, we have Rosa Maria Paya. She is a Cuban activist for freedom and human rights and the leader of the campaign Cuba Decide, which advocates for a range of democratic reforms inside the country. She's the daughter of a longtime activist, Oswaldo Paya, head of the Christian Liberation Movement, and took up much of his work after he died under mysterious circumstances on July 22, 2012. Yes, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Finally, we've got Casey Cagley, uh, IRI's resident Cuba and Latin American expert. Casey currently serves as a program manager and has worked with IRI since 2013. He has a master's degree in international relations from George Mason University, and he speaks impeccable Spanish. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's get started. Casey, we know that Cuba has had a fascinating history stretching back hundreds of years that we wouldn't be able to do justice here. So why don't you give us a three-minute rundown on the most relevant points of the last 30 years or so? Sure. I can, I can mention a couple of things that I think are really worth um, having in mind when you think about what's going on today in Cuba. Um, I think a good starting point is the, the so-called special period in peacetime. Um, when the Soviet Union started to collapse in the late 80s and early 90s, the uh, system of quotas and subsidies and loans that had underpinned Cuba's economy for uh, decades, really, uh, started to collapse. Um, and since Cuba was so dependent on these subsidies, when this structure disappeared, it was devastating. Um, imports plummeted, uh, the economy contracted by, by over a third. Uh, and as you can imagine, this, this had a profound impact on society. Um, no one could make ends meet, wages plummeted, uh, shortages of foods uh, were at famine levels. Um, I mean, we heard stories of people using fruit rinds or tree bark to make stew or, or steaks, in quotes, uh, people eating even dogs and cats or even zoo animals just to survive. Um, and so I mentioned this period because I think the, the, experience, the experience was really formative for a lot of younger Cubans, people who today are in their 20s and 30s. Um, they have only grown up now in a Cuba that, uh, where this kind of poverty is almost the norm. Uh, I mean, things have gotten a little better since then, but that was very formative for them. Um, and as a result, they tend to be much more disillusioned and, and certainly detached from the idea of the, the revolution and, and socialism that their, their older peers are. Rosa Maria, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you and your family during that period? The Cuba of the 90s, that was the environment in which I uh, grew up, was 
marked not just by the poverty and and the misery, but also by the by the by the repression, by the isolation. The uh, I I saw how many of my of my father friends went to jail just for uh, demanding uh, the the same things that my parents and many other Cubans and my classmates uh, want. That was just to to have opportunities in life, to to could enjoy freedoms, to to be able to to um, look the have look for the happiness in the, in a way that that. Uh, anyone decides that in Cuba is not is not an option. What else, Casey? Um, the other key event, I think, is that it's actually a, a series of events or, or even reforms in Cuba. Um, in 2006, Fidel Castro, who, who was at the center of so much in Cuba for, for so long, became seriously sick and transferred, at least temporarily, power to his younger brother, Raul. Um, in 2008, that that transfer was was made official, um, and Raúl started to launch uh, a series of pretty tentative reforms. Uh, for example, they started to allow Cubans to own cell phones, uh, laptops, computers, uh, to buy and sell houses, um, to, to travel abroad without you know special permission, um, and little by little to access the internet. Um, and then, as we know now, they've also increased the um, ability of Cubans to own private businesses or to at least operate small businesses. Um, each of these reforms was, was implemented in a, in a very cautious, slow way, um, but they've combined in a way that I think the result has been from a lot of Cubans slightly more economic independence um, and access to information, though I think you know, there's no more... Um, political or human rights um, f- freedoms than, than there were before. The other effect has been that the Cubans, uh, especially young Cubans, um, who, as I said, were already kind of skeptical of the revolution, have been exposed to the lifestyles, the, the wealth um, and culture from, from beyond Cuba, uh, from Miami, from Spain, from Latin America. Uh, but they remain, I think, frustrated by the slow pace of change at home, the stagnating economy, the poverty, the lack of choice and freedoms generally. Um, Something that to me is striking is the fact that still uh, many young Cubans, um, as many as 40 percent in one survey, just want to leave the country. Wow, that is striking. I think that's certainly not the commonly held perception of Cuba in the United States. Along those lines, Congresswoman, in your experience, what are some of the other common misconceptions about Cuba? Oh, that is a great question. I would say that what most people get wrong is that they go to Cuba on vacation because you can travel to Cuba now. Uh, They go on vacation, even though they might classify it as, you know, a journalist or an educator or anything, any of those 12 uh, categories that allow you to travel to Cuba. And they'll be there for maybe at the most seven days. They come back to the United States and they say, no, I know Cuba. I've been to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And I could be a tourist in Paris, France, a free place. But I I wouldn't think that by being in Paris for seven days, 
I would presume to know Paris. Yet there is something unique about being in Cuba that people think when I'm staying at this fancy hotel or this bed and breakfast that it gives me an experience and now now I really now I really know Cuba. So I would say, gosh, I know it's an exotic vacation for you, but look look behind that. I'm not telling you not to go to Cuba. Uh, what I'm saying is that come away knowing that what you see as a tourist is not what the Cuban people feel and experience every day. They want to be free. They want to have freedom. Uh, they want their human rights respected. So a vacation does not mean that you're a Cuba expert. Rosa Maria, could you speak to what the day-to-day experience is actually like for most Cubans, especially activists like yourself? It is, it is very hard. They are several challenges for, for those to try to make a, a real change in the islands, and that challenge are marked by the repression and the, and the work of the Cuban secret police or state security, as we also know it. But also because of in a, because of in a state, all the all the media, all the communications are owned by the regime, are owned by by the government, by the by the group of people empowered, and that makes it very difficult. Having said so, after sixty years of dictatorships, everybody knows what is grown and everybody knows that what we need to change is the system and especially among the young people especially among the new generations the generation of artists the generation of of a cubans that want actually to live in a different in a in a in a different environment the possibilities to make an impact is uh, are are very are, are very great. Congresswoman, can you tell us a bit about the activists known as the Ladies in White? Well, thank you for asking me that. The Las Damas de Blanco, the Ladies in White, a wonderful group of uh, peaceful dissidents um, who get their heads bashed in every Sunday. But uh, uh, these are ladies who dress in white, and for year after year, they have been uh, walking from their home peacefully, uh, without saying a word, from their home to the nearby church. And they have with them a gladiola, a, a flower that is the symbol of their organization, and a picture of a loved one who's usually a family member who has been in jail or is in jail now for human rights, for, for uh, political causes because their human rights have been denied. And uh, this regime in Cuba is so insecure that this peaceful group of, let's say, maybe in Havana they'll have 15 ladies walking. In Matanzas, they'll have 20. In uh, Las Cruces, they'll have 40. You know, little towns all over Cuba. And they get rounded up and they get harassed and they get thrown in jail. It's amazing that uh, if I were the dictator of Cuba, I would let them go because it's just terrible public relations. there, And uh, they're just uh, wonderful women who have been recognized internationally uh, they've won many prizes for for their their staunch defense of freedom. Well, that's certainly inspiring to hear. What I think a lot of people would want to know is how someone like me or our audience, who may not be typically involved in activism, could support Cuba's activists. There are several ways to uh, to support Cuban activism. The the the, the 
first one, the most immediate one, is by saying the truth about the Cuban situation. Is by actually spreading the voice about how Cuba is still a dictatorship, how the Cuban people is still suffering uh, one of the biggest repressions in the history of our hemisphere, and and how all the propaganda of the uh, communist regime has been trying to mock the international community by saying uh, the opposite. So we've alluded to the regime several times. Maybe it'd be beneficial at this point to give the listeners an overview of the structure of the regime. Casey, could you enlighten us? Of course. Um, you know, I think for the last, most of the last 60 years or so, uh, the Cuban government, the, the regime has, has revolved around the really singular personality of Fidel Castro. Um, on paper, the government actually shares a lot of the institutions of a normal democratic government, again, on paper. It has a constitution, it has a president, a cabinet, national assembly, regional assemblies, and so on. Um, but superimposed over all of that structure are the armed forces um, and the Communist Party. The latter is, according to the country's own constitution, the, the supreme guiding force in, in Cuban politics and in, and in Cuban life. Uh, it happens to be the only legal party. Uh, it's a one-party state. And for the most of the last 60 years, uh, the person who leads the party has also led the armed forces and thus the, the government. And what role does the military play? Great question. Um, it, the military generally plays a very prominent, if maybe understated, role in Cuba. What do I mean by that? Uh, the Castros have led the party and um, surrounded themselves with trusted military men, most of whom um, are fellow veterans of the, the revolution in the, in the late 50s. Uh, increasingly, though, under Raul especially, the military has taken a, a greater stake in actually running the economy. Um, Raul has placed current or retired uh, officers, many of whom also happen to have close family ties, uh, in charge of Cuba's most strategic industries. Um, these include trade, uh, tourism, communications, extractive industry, uh, and so on. So the military has a, has a huge stake in the governance, but also the economy of the country. Would you say it's fair to classify Cuba as more of a military dictatorship than a socialist state? I would categorize the Cuban regime uh, as, especially now, with the diminishing role of Raul Castro as, as a kind of hybrid. Yes, it is absolutely a military dictatorship, uh, given the institution's role in governing. Um, but it is also a socialist state, at least in the sense that 
the regime controls the vast majority of economic activity and, and applies a socialist model uh, in the country. So Casey mentioned the diminishing role of Raul Castro, which is a good segue into talking about the newly selected president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel. Congresswoman, who is Miguel Diaz-Canel and what are the implications of his presidency? Well, Diaz-Canel, another good question, you guys have done your homework, is the new leader of Cuba. And people will think, oh, for the first time in so many years, since 59, there's a person whose last name is not Castro, who is the president of Cuba. And they'll think, whoa, this is really monumental. This is really quite a change. The reality is that it's no change at all because he was selected as a because he's subservient to the revolution. And being for the revolution means that you're not for freedom and democracy. He was not elected, you use the right word, he was selected. So he was a career bureaucrat, an electrical engineer by, by profession, but more than anything, was very close to the Castros and never, um, never showed off like some of the younger folks around the, the Castro orbit. So I think Raul said, mm, in him, here's somebody that we can manipulate, someone we can control. And while Raul Castro remains the, uh, the head of the Communist Party of Cuba, that's where the power is. So they could have anybody there as the president of Cuba. That doesn't mean that that person controls anything. So he, and, and the moment that he was selected, not elected, because there are no free elections in Cuba, there's only one party that's allowed, and that's the Communist Party. So they get together and they have a slate of candidates and uh, everyone is elected in their so-called election because it's already been a pre-selection. Nobody loses an election in Cuba because there are no elections. So in the moment that he was selected, he already said, uh, Raul Castro will, will give me my orders. And he was very proud of it. What's your take, Rosa Maria? The designation of the appointing of um, Miguel Diaz-Canel by Raul Castro is a sign of the vulnerability of a regime that is trying to make their own transition from power to power. They are trying to pass like in a, a succession process, the power for the group of generals that have been there for half a century to their sons and, and grandsons. And in the process, they need to make some symbolic gestures for the international community and for the Cuban people to, to try to show them that there is some kind of opening process taking place when the reality is just that this group of people want to keep their their privilege and their power and try to perpetuate themselves in that position. Anyway, this appointing indicates that uh, the, the weakness of, uh, of the regime is bigger now, indicates also that, that the legitimacy of this bunch of generals that have been never elected by the Cuban people is now even less because they have to impose a new face and a new name that nobody elected to their own people and also to the international community. So I think that, yes, this is an, an opportunity to push even harder for real changes, and those changes 
will start in the moment in which the Cuban people have the opportunity to participate. That's exactly what this regime has been trying to prevent, and that's exactly what hasn't happened during the process of designation of Díaz-Canel. We've seen recently, particularly in Nicaragua and Venezuela, that there are clearly some significant political challenges facing the region. Are these trends that Díaz-Canel is also going to have to contend with? Absolutely. What happens in the, uh, in the hemisphere impacts uh, Cuba directly. And what, uh, what the regime has seen is that uh, uh, Nicaragua is struggling financially. Uh, Venezuela has, has got massive uh, inflation. The latest inflation, it was something like 18,000%. It's, it's just such an astronomical figure that you can't, you can't really put it in your head. Uh, you know, a, a, a stick of gum, let's say, would be, you know, $50,000. And, and the money has, just has no value. And so what, is, what, what are they going to do uh, in Venezuela? That's what, that's what the new so-called president of uh, Cuba has to, has to bargain with. What can we get out of these countries? Because they need these countries in order to survive. And uh, there are always international groups who think that, oh, if we were to invest in Cuba now, we know in our heart of hearts that it's an economic basket case. We know that we don't have any, any, uh, e- any duress uh, relief in courts because there's no court system in Cuba. Uh, there's no impartial juries or anything like that. But they're willing to do to make an economic stake in Cuba, hoping that when Cuba is free, then their hotel will be the last hotel standing. And that never, that never occurs. The Cuban people remember who was with their oppressor and who was with them. So um, they'll, find, they'll find some sugar daddy, but Venezuela and Nicaragua are real problems for Cuba now. Rosa Maria, do you think we'll see large-scale protests like those in Nicaragua and Venezuela replicated in Cuba? We have to take into, into, into consideration that the, the repression and the level of surveillance in Cuba the mechanisms of, of surveillance have been uh, refined for years and decades to try to prevent social explosions to, to, to happen. And when these explosions take place, to try to hide that uh, reality. So in Cuba, it's more difficult to see massive expressions in this in the in the streets and, and saying difficult not not impossible it has happened in the past actually it has happened in the recent past as reactions of um, unhappiness and actually as protest against a specific conditions and a specific actions coming from the regime and there are many other expressions that the Cubans has used to also show their unhappiness and their need of, of change. Those expressions are there in social media. Those expressions are also related with the large amount of young people that didn't go to the ballot box or notify their ballot box as a sign of, of rejection to the system and also the big amount of young people that sadly but very consistently and, and, and typically are 
trying to leave the country and trying to escape from a reality that is that that is giving them no other choice or no other hopes of actually having the life that they want. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about Cuba's foreign policy. What are the regime's goals in the international community? I would say that what Cuba wants to do right now uh, in terms of foreign policy goals is strengthen its, its economy. And Venezuela is an economic basket case, and not to mention a, a, a basket case in terms of human rights and freedom and, and uh, everything else. But Venezuela has been the patron, the economic patron of Cuba. As Venezuela gets poorer and poorer because communism doesn't work, socialism doesn't work, eventually you run out of other people's money, as Margaret Thatcher said. Um, so Cuba is looking, as part of their foreign policy goals, who is going to be their next sugar daddy. Russia, the Soviet Union, for a long time, for decades, was the sugar daddy of Cuba. Then, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, then Venezuela took over. So now Venezuela uh, can't help as much as they can as they could have, but they're still providing a lot of petroleum. So Cuba is saying, okay, with the Europeans, we've got to increase tourism. Uh, tourism in Cuba is state controlled. The hotels are are owned by the by the military. You really can't own property as such as we know it as American citizens, as uh, the Cubans have found out. So you do business with the regime if you want to do a bed and breakfast or a hotel, but they know that the, uh, the regime knows that if they want to keep afloat, they've got to increase tourism or find another, another sugar daddy like Maduro, and maybe they'll find someone in, in Europe, or maybe they'll get Russia back. So with Venezuela and Russia less capable of providing economic support, how has the regime reacted? So as both of those arrangements have, have crumbled, uh, the Cubans have been forced now to diversify. Uh, today, some of the economy's most lucrative sectors um, include tourism um, and actually medical missions where, where the government sends you know, thousands of, of doctors and, and nurses abroad uh, to serve in difficult settings, but um, they end up actually pocketing a, a large a large chunk of what those doctors actually make uh, or what they're paid from the host government. We can't talk about Cubans abroad without discussing the role the diaspora plays in the country's story. Rosemaria, what do we need to know about their role? Well, the Cuban diaspora, the Cuban exile has been forever very active in the promotion of Cuban freedom, of the Cuban liberation, and also trying to raise awareness about the real situation on the island. Because an aspect that sometimes is not is not explained enough is that the, the Cuban regime, the Castroism, has been very active in selling the grown image, has been very active in telling lies about the Cuban situation, even in telling lies about the Cuban diaspora, so that the, the Cuban exile has to be very, have to be very creative to counterrest the propaganda of the of the Cuban regime. I think that it is relevant and it is an unseparable 
part of the given nation, that part that lives abroad. So they are as invited as the Cubans that live inside to be part of the of the solution. The way in which Cubans from the from the exile have been helping Cubans in the island in all possible way, not just in a, a humanitarian way, but also in the in the most important one that is trying to actually mobilize the international community to obtain real changes uh, in the island are not just an important role, it's also something that other exiled communities have been trying to do, but Cubans has uh, my admiration because of the hard conditions in which they have express their uh, their ideas always in question by the Cuban regime propaganda. Looking ahead, it's hard to imagine a democratic transition occurring in Cuba in the near future. But as we know from cases like Tunisia, these kinds of things are not very easy to predict. So, Casey, what do you think needs to happen inside the country for Cuba to get on the path towards democracy? Um, that's a great question. And I think what you, what you were saying about Tunisia really resonates. Um, I, I do think that if Cuba does experience a, a democratic transition someday, it will be one of those cases like Tunisia where it was completely unexpected until the day it starts. And then we'll look back after the fact and say it was so obvious and it was, it was so inevitable. For a transition to occur in Cuba, I think there has to be a positive viable alternative vision, um, and that the youth must be involved. Um, There have been a lot of brave, innovative dissidents, activists, uh, journalists, and others fighting for for human rights and democracy in Cuba. Um, I know many of them and admire them tremendously. Um, Their bravery and their dedication can't, should not be under, understated. But I think it's it's going to be the, the young, uh, typically apathetic Cubans uh, with all of their detachment and frustration that I mentioned earlier with the regime, uh, with their thirst for freedom and independence that I think will, will someday soon decide to take their future into their hands. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that uh, many of them simply want to leave the country. One obscure U.S. policy development that may prove uh, fateful is the end of the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy, um, which in a nutshell made it, made it easier for many Cubans to move to the U.S. Uh, since then, since the, that policy ended in um, early 2017, many of these people who I think would otherwise have expressed their frustration with the regime by, by leaving for the U.S. Um, now don't really have that option. And so I think that frustration will build among young Cubans uh, over the coming years and uh, reach a point where they are so fed up with things that they, they say enough. So if Cuba were to embark on this democratic transition tomorrow, what would the greatest challenges be? Uh, if and when, I guess, a, a transition does occur, I think Cubans will face huge challenges, just like, just like in any country that has gone through a transition, like Tunisia, like Burma, for example. Um, It'll be really difficult to replace the decades of brain drain, um, talented, uh, especially young Cubans who have left the country. Uh, 
to establish rules and institutions of democratic government, um, to begin setting up a, a market economy. Um, this is a population that has been under a paternalistic socialist government for decades. And I think it'll be very important, uh, especially for older generations, to, to take care of this, this portion of the population uh, who will rely on the state to provide for them. But the hardest issues will be, I think, those related to transitional justice. Uh, what do you do with the huge intelligence and security apparatus? Um, how do you integrate people who have been informers and repressors, and that's all they know? And this is from you know the top communist officials uh, to lowly police officers, prison guards, um, etc. These are, I think, really thorny issues that other countries have spent decades wrangling with after their own transition. Um, there are no easy solutions, and any agreement kind of necessarily is unsatisfying to some group or, or many groups in society. Um, so depending on how it's handled, I think the issue of transitional justice in the event of a transition in Cuba um, could really make or break how Cuba forms democratically. Well, ending on a bit of a lighter note, if each country were going to prepare a time capsule to shoot off into space for aliens to find, what would Cuba put in to represent their country? If I had to pick one thing that I think um, kind of captures what's, what's going on in Cuba right now, I would put a USB flash drive in the time capsule, specifically one that contains what's called the paquete, the weekly packet. Uh, this is a, a really cool and, and fascinating Cuban development. Uh, in a place where they, people don't have regular access to the internet, they have kind of devised over the last few years this system of, you know, hand-to-hand -hand distribution of internet, TV, music, content, all of this stuff um, throughout the, the entire network on USBs. I mean, if you go down to Havana and you pay a couple of dollars for, uh, for access, you can, you can download um, a la carte, so to speak. The latest, the latest episodes of your favorite TV shows, uh, music videos, uh, websites, all of that stuff. Um, and so it's, to me, really indicative of how Cubans uh, resolver, how they resolve, how they invent um, just to survive. It's an incredible characteristic of, of the Cuban people uh, and something that I think would fit really well in a, in a time capsule. Okay, Sinclair. So if our listeners were to remember three key things from this episode, what would they be? 
Well, the first would be that even though the new president, Miguel Diaz-Canel, isn't a Castro, he doesn't really represent any sort of change in terms of who really has the reins of power in Cuba. The cadre of generals who run the country through the military essentially selected him because he would act under their direction while presenting a facade of political change. And I'd say that the second most important takeaway is that a lot of people outside Cuba don't really have an accurate conception of how much control the military dictatorship exercises over Cubans' daily lives. The regime uses its total controls of things like your job or education and its extensive surveillance system as a method to suppress dissent and essentially extort individual Cubans into supporting the status quo. And finally, I'd say that it's essential to recognize that the youth in Cuba are going to be the fundamental change makers moving forward. They've grown up suffering from the failures of their despotic government, and even though many of them leave the island physically, they're still motivated to transform the repressive structure they grew up under into something that actually works for them. Once again, we were incredibly fortunate to have such knowledgeable guests join us today. Having Rosa Maria Payá share her experience as someone who lives and breathes the true cause of Cuban liberation was incredibly inspiring. You can get more from her at at Rosa Maria Payá on Twitter or check out her website, cubadecide.org, which is C-U-B-A-D-E-C-I-D-E.org. Also having Congresswoman Ileana ross Layton was amazing. She gave us a unique perspective as both a Cuban immigrant to the United States and a policymaker who advocates for Cubans in the U.S. every day. Check her out on Twitter at, at Ross Layton. Finally, Casey Cagley dropped some serious knowledge on us about the real nuts and bolts of Cuba's political system. He's definitely worth following if you want informed commentary on the island and the region in general. His Twitter handle is at C.E.Cagley. Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, give us a nice five-star rating, leave us a review on our iTunes page, all that good stuff. See you next time.
Okay, Global Diehards, you know the drill. Your reward for listening this far is a hint about the country for the next episode. What's our hint, Sinclair? So in 2012, archaeologists from the Academy of Social Sciences in this country reported that they had discovered the ancient lair of a unicorn. Yes, you heard me correctly, a unicorn. Don't Google it. If you think you know which country purports to have an ancient unicorn lair, feel free to leave your answer in the comments section. Send us an email at podcast at IRI.org or hit us up on Twitter at IRI Global. We may give you a shout out in our next episode.